Well, if you notice in your handout, you're going to have, uh, sorry, Children's Church is dismissed, yes. If you look, <laughs> hey, if you want to stay, that's the best compliment I've heard in this room in a year, so just going to be straight honest about it. It's the little ones, right? Faith like a child. If you picked up a handout, you're going to have a lot of fun stuff in there, but you're going to have this thick little handout thing that I've put together for you regarding the spirit, soul, and body. Now, if you've only picked up one handout, you're not going to have an extra one of those. And so if you would raise your hand if you want one so that Zach can get it to you, because today is going to be very different. I'm not going to run around and yell and spit and preach like I normally do. Uh, I know, sorry. Uh, We're going to go through this handout because it's very, very important information. So this is an educational Sunday. Okay, but this is very important for us to understand. And I'm going to ask you, once you get that, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis, because that's really where we're going to start. We're not going to cover too many actual passages of Scripture today, but what we are going to cover is going to have a lot of weight to it, and so I think it's important that we we focus in on just a few So let's talk about some things that really messed us up last week. Whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels shall find it or shall save it. What does a man profit if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what will a man take in exchange for his soul? And what we found is, is that the word soul in life are interchangeable in those types of contexts. And the thing that I've heard probably the most from you over this past week is the fact that I made the remark that a Christian can lose their soul. Now, I think this is important to understand. The salvation of the soul has nothing to do with justification. It has everything to do with those who are already justified. And hopefully from the language we've been looking at at Romans, that helps you place this. The salvation of the soul has nothing to do with going to heaven when you die. The salvation of the soul has everything to do with how you are stewarding your life on this earth now that you are a believer in Christ. Or probably verbiage that you would be more uh, consistent with would be the idea of progressive sanctification. So the idea to lose your soul in this life is to not live for yourself. That's the idea. Instead, you would be taking up your cross and following him because you have denied yourself. Now, why are we at where we're at? How in the world did we get here? Let's back up from the trees for a minute and look at the forest. We are on the way to the area of spiritual gifts. But if we don't know what it is to be spiritual, we can't use the gifts that God has given us. And so we've been looking at the three tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And when you come to Romans 6.22, you find out that eternal life is used there, as well as 2.7, as well as 5.21, that eternal life is mentioned as something that is to be gained by works. And so what we have seen is that eternal life can be understood in two ways, depending on the context. If it's a free gift and it's mentioned in the past, then the idea is is that that involves someone becoming from lost to saved or from unregenerate 
to regenerate. They were dead, they were separated from God, and now they've been made alive. But if it's eternal life used with a context, it has to do with works. And it speaks of present leading out to the future out ahead. If that is the idea, then it deals with the quality of life that you will have when this life is over. What will our existence in the kingdom look like? And this is why it's possible to lose your soul, to not save your soul. It is possible to live for yourself, refusing to deny yourself, refusing to take up your cross, refusing to follow Jesus. Now, immediately we want to go through the Rolodex of our mind and think about who those people are, because it's everybody but us, right? That's what we like to think. How many people are scared right now? I can't tell. Just making sure. Everybody got antsy pants throughout this week after I said that. What's that? Confused. That's what today is for. So here we go. Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at it. Why were we created? Genesis chapter 1. Look at 26 and 27 and 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them do what? Rule. You and I were created to rule, to have dominion, if you've got a different translation. You and I were created for the purpose of having ownership in all that God had made and exercising authority over his creation. It says here, to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our job is to rule. Now here's what's interesting, if you're familiar with Noah coming off the ark, when it finally lands, he's finally free to go, he steps out. The command is given again to be fruitful and multiply, but the idea of having dominion and subduing it is not there. The reason why y'all go hunting is because that stuff doesn't just come to you. You don't just have dominion over it. How many people have been fishing and caught nothing? Case in point, we obviously don't have dominion over the fish, otherwise we would tell them to jump in the boat and they would, but they don't. Now, wouldn't that be nice? And that makes Jesus' haul when he told Peter, cast on the other side. We know who has dominion. So we forfeited dominion. That's become a problem. This is what sin has done. And because we forfeited dominion, who rules now? Satan rules. That's the problem that we have. Sin rules. This is the problem that we're faced with. Now, if you look over at Genesis 2-7, we've got a breakdown of how we were created in that image and likeness. We see some very fine details. Look what it says. Then Yahweh Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now let's break this down real quick. Notice, number one, that what happens to Adam at this time is all God's doing. It's all God's doing, and we need to understand that, okay? All of it is God taking the initiative to create and to act. That's important for you to understand for what we're going to see here in a minute. Notice the very first thing that we see on the scene is the body. Look at it. 
Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. What is that? That is our bodies. This is why we have the whole phrase, from dust to dust. Yes? All right, yes. To dust you shall return is the idea. So the body is formed. Then you move on here and look what it says. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of, what's it say? Life. This is the spirit. In fact, the idea of spirit, rosh, being used in the Hebrew, or if you use pneuma in the New Testament, is the idea it can be interchangeable with breath or wind or that type of thing. But notice that God takes the initiative to take this created being of dust, completely lifeless, and breathes into the nostrils. Now, here's what happens when that takes place. The spirit is now breathed into Adam, and watch what takes place here. And he became a living, everybody see the word being? If you've got a Bible that's got a little mark next to it, and you look over at your margin, what's the word that's brought up there? Soul. In other words, there's something about when God breathes the Spirit into Adam, when it meets the body, it produces the soul. Now, what are those things that take place there? Because this is how we're set up, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Here's what Paul says at the end here. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Everybody got that? Now watch this. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your spirit, your soul, your body. Now, at the coming of Jesus Christ, we understand that as the rapture of the church. What takes place right after the rapture? No. The judgment seat of Christ, where believers will stand and they will give an account of what they have done in the body, whether it be good or bad, whether it be good or evil. So when it talks about this idea of may the Lord sanctify us, it's all his doing, but to do so completely, okay? Read it again that you may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame. What does that mean? That your life wasn't wasted in some way, that you didn't blemish it or stain it or spot it somehow, but how we stewarded our lives so that we will have a good showing at the judgment seat of Christ. For some believers, they think about the idea of standing before the Lord and giving account of their lives as a follower of His, as a slave of His, as a child of God, as a terrifying thing. Let me tell you this. This is the reason why we have passages like this. The judgment seat of Christ is not terrifying for people that don't have anything to be ashamed of. This is why how we live matters. A lot of people say, well, your, your theology is just too free. It's a, it's a stamp your ticket and you get into heaven, now you can do whatever you want. And I say, yes, you can, but don't expect for your daddy not to paddle you when you get out of line. Don't expect for him not to tell you page after page to warn you of a time of judgment to come, to not live for self, but to recognize you in Christ have been called to so much greater than what we often settle for. And all of the New Testament writers are trying to encourage us, prod us, look at your life, get rid of the junk, live for Christ. Take up the new man that he's offered. Don't wallow back in that pit of nothing. It will lead to death. 
So with all of that being said, let's flip back to our point in Genesis and let's look at our papers. And I want to give you this important thing. If you will look at where it says 1 Thessalonians 5.23, I just want to go through this with you real quick. I'm going to do a lot of reading from this, okay? Forgive me if it's not exciting, but it's essential. Paul's prayer for the setting apart of their entirety and the spirit, soul, and body to be kept intact and blameless unto the coming of the Lord for his church. Only God can sanctify us completely. Only God can do the work. In fact, the way that we become holy, set apart, sanctified is by us getting out of the way and surrendering to his leading. Uh, this happens when the presentation of the members of our body as instruments of righteousness as a result of our reckoning upon our identity in Christ. And I underline this so that you would take note of it. Submission in light of redemption is the key. If you try to submit to God without an understanding of the new life that you've been given in Jesus Christ, you become a legalist. And the way that you judge whether or not you're progressing in the faith is you start looking at how everybody else is living their lives and then you simply look at God, well, at least I'm not doing that. That never worked with anybody. That didn't work with one single person. If we become just so full of knowledge, but we never do anything with our lives and moving forward and submitting to the Lord, then we may be smart about doctrine, but we demonstrate our ignorance because doctrine should lead to obedience. So they've got to be in balance. They've got to be in check. And our in Christ standing has to be first, our positional righteousness, before we ever begin to apply ourselves to practical righteousness. Otherwise, we serve in vain. Now, everybody stick with me here. Number one, the material part of us. What about the body? What's so significant about our bodies? The body in the Greek is soma. It means a living body, whether of man, animal, plant, or seed. There's some other uses of it there, but I want you to look at the very last sentence in that little paragraph. The redemption of the body is our glorification. It's future. That's the last phase of spiritual salvation. Justification is first. Sanctification is second glorification is third. And so our bodies will actually be redeemed at the end and our salvation will be complete because then we will be given glorified bodies. So here's some things we need to know. The body of man is made of dust. It's considered the lower part of a human being. In fact, if you look at the very back of your papers that are all stapled together, Emily came up with this schnazzy little pyramid in order to show us kind of maybe an illustration if you're a more visual person. Because we're made of the dirt the dust of the ground, the body is considered the lower part. Everybody see that? It looked a lot better in color. I don't know what's wrong with our printer. Emily did a good job, so she... Go up and pat her on the shoulder later. Tell her good job. Next one here. The body relates to the material world. It's the vehicle that we use to interact with one another. It has having five senses. It is the vehicle by which we either influence the world or we're found to be influenced by it. It's the way that the influence of the world gets into the inner being, the immaterial part. It comes through the vehicle of our body. The third one, the body is in a state of gradual deterioration. No amens on that one, really? Okay, I was going to say, it's a fact. The body is in a state of gradual deterioration, and in my old age, I'm recognizing that. And it will eventually return to dust. You don't know my troubles, leave me alone. This is, what's that? You know my age. Well, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> the body did not die at the fall. That's important to understand. When Adam sinned and their eyes were open, he didn't kill over, did he? 
No, but there began a gradual deterioration of this flesh vehicle. Yes? Okay, so we understand that. We get it. The next one, the fourth one. It is the vehicle used for expression, either of righteous acts, which only believers can perform, or unrighteous acts, which believers and or unbelievers can perform. Believers can actually act worse than pagans. It's possible. All you have to do is read the New Testament and find it out. Does it affect their going to heaven when you die? No, because they didn't do any works in order to get that great blessing. It's freely by His grace. Can they get paddled by the Father? Will it cost them rewards? Will it cost them responsibility? Can they actually experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ? 1 Corinthians 3.15, yes, absolutely they can. How about the next part here? Fifth one. The body houses the soul and the spirit and serves as the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit for the redeemed. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 6 not too long ago. And the believer's adoption takes place with the rapture of the church. There's a lot of people who believe that at the moment we believe we're adopted into the family. There's a couple of verses, maybe you can make that case, but it seems by and large that the adoption of the believer actually happens with the culmination of the saving of the body. Whenever we're actually caught up in the rapture, to go to be with Him, our deteriorating bodies are then transformed into glorified bodies. That's when the adoption is made complete. And notice I have the verses there for you to check that. The believer's adoption takes place with the rapture of the church, also called the redemption of our body, meaning our glorification. So if we wanted to sum up some basic things about our body, that's what our bodies are like as far as God is concerned, what they can do, how they can either be pleasing to Him or unpleasing to Him, used for His purposes or not. Now, the body houses... Two parts that are immaterial. The first part is the spirit. This is pneuma, the non-material psychological faculty which is potentially sensitive and responsive to God. Now, if you've noticed, I've got footnotes for this. This is the reason why I put those there. And so I didn't want you to think that I'm crazy just coming up with weird stuff out of the air. This is something that people have been studying for a long time, and I've pulled from these lexicons because they see these divisions in the Scriptures. Notice also the rational part of man, the power of perceiving and grasping divine and eternal things, and upon which the Spirit of God exerts its influence. The redemption of our spirit is justification. So when you heard the gospel as someone who was separated from God, dead in trespasses and sins, having no life and totally fit for the lake of fire, you heard the gospel message and you responded by believing it. At the moment of faith, your spirit was completely saved. Now, what in the world does that look at? If you notice on the other side of that page with the pyramid, if you just turn in, you've got four designs here of concentric circles. If you notice in the top left hand, This is what we look like, for diagrams' sake, apart from God. Notice that we have a human spirit in the middle that houses the old man. We are dead to God, and so we're not responsive to His leading because the way He ministers to us is through the Spirit. Notice that we have a soul we're going to look at in a moment, made of mind, emotions, and will. And then the body is the outer core because that's where we meet with the people around us. If you notice over in block number two, you find the idea of the human spirit, the old man, the same idea, but God is outside of us, and indwelling sin, the sin principle, or what we would call the sin nature that makes us commit sins, is touching all three 
points. Because we're dead, what part of us is dead to God? Is it? The spirit in particular. The body deteriorating, but still moving, yes. We're going to see here in a minute, the soul was still moving, but, but really warped, really messed up after the fall. But the fact is, is that when Adam did what he wanted to do, his spirit died. His spirit became separated from God. So indwelling sin touches all three circles. Now go down to three, because this is what it looks like when you get the cross involved. When you get the cross involved, the cross then begins separating the indwelling sin from the old man, and this is what leads us to number four. Number four over here shows that the old master indwelling sin is still trying to work with the soul and the body. But as far as where the indwelling Holy Spirit is, surrounding our spirit and Christ indwells us, untouchable, completely redeemed. So at justification, our spirit is made righteous. Now we shouldn't understand that in a Catholic sense, not at all. Our spirit is made righteous and our spirit is what houses the Holy Spirit. So let's turn back to our page and look at it here as we go down through there. Very first thing we have the bottom at the first page. Since the spirit of man had its origin with God, God breathed in his nostrils, yes. And that was the breath of life, the spirit. It says here, it is the part of man that is either connected or disconnected to God, depending on if one is regenerate, meaning alive, they have the indwelling Holy Spirit, or unregenerate, meaning that they are dead in trespasses and sins, or separated. Before the fall, Yahweh breathed into man the breath of life, which is the spirit, And it is the spirit of Adam that was separated or died at the fall. Turn over with me, please. The spirit is considered the highest plane of man when connected to Yahweh Elohim. For God is spirit. The Bible doesn't tell us that just just for, for giggles to make us, you know, tickle our minds or something like that. God is spirit and we need to take that seriously. And he must be worshiped in spirit and truth. Proverbs 20, 27 says, the spirit of man, which God breathed into us, is the lamp of who? The Lord. Notice that. Searching all the innermost parts of his being. It's interesting. One translation says the chambers of his belly. Good grief. I hope the spirit doesn't see the chambers of my belly. That's crazy. But notice it says next one here. It is within the spirit of man that the Holy Spirit dwells at conversion seeing that our spirit is what is made alive at conversion while also being made righteous. The Holy Spirit and the human spirit are not the same thing. That's important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit and the human spirit are not the same thing. It says here, uh, let's see, uh, which then gives way to our minds. uh, Sorry, that's not right. Forgive me. Seeing that both of them testify together that we are God's children. Now, if you notice a lot of the quotations that I'm giving you here for references are in Romans 8. That's the reason why I'm introducing you to these things now. Because when we hit seven, there's going to be a struggle. Oh, this body, who will save me from this body of death? Everybody remember that at the end of Romans 7? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says some actually very provocative and controversial things to end that chapter. Now, you'll look at that later, but I've never heard anybody preach on the end of that chapter, be able to represent it for what Paul is actually saying. And if we don't understand the body, soul, and the spirit, we can't understand that passage. So that's why we're looking over this. The next one here, being led into truth is done by the Holy Spirit. Are we not told that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth? Yes, 
Okay. Within our spirits, which then gives way to our minds for the purpose of renewal, transforming the mind so that the will and emotions will follow, and in turn, aligning the body with the spirit so that the spiritual man is discerning of all things. Or let me, let me phrase this for you in a way you might remember. This is getting your F train in order. This is the idea of the facts being set first, having faith or believing in what is true, and then our emotions follow. Well, God ministers to us through our spirits. That's how he does that. When we talk about that he is indwelling us, he is indwelling in our spirits. He doesn't work in the soul. He works through the spirit in order to convince the soul and to renew the mind with the word because the soul still needs saving. That's the problem. That's why we sin. So the last one here, our spirit is what leaves our bodies when physical death occurs. So I've given you four other examples there. Depending on the context, the idea of spirit can also be used in those situations. So with all that being said, now we're finally at to where hopefully the fog lifts. Everybody still foggy? A little bit? Here's where it's going to lift. You ready? The soul, also translated as the life. It can be translated as life. There's really no difference in that. The Greek is suke, or some people actually write out psyche. You know, we know that because psychology's really grabbed a hold of that and ran with it. Notice it's number one, it's life on earth and its animating aspect, making bodily function possible. Number two, the seat and center of the inner human life in its many and varied aspects. Number three, an entity with personhood. The essence of life in terms of thinking, willing, and feeling. Or it's also known as the inner self, the mind, the thoughts, the feelings, whenever we say the heart or your being. You guys realize when we go through Scripture, we don't really find anywhere in Scripture when we talk about heart, they're talking about what's pumping in your chest. They're actually talking about what you're verifying as to be true or not. And when they heard these things, they were pierced to the heart. Does everybody remember that? Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And then they cry out, sirs, what must we do? If you look at your marginal footnote in that, it says they were actually struck in their conscience, is what it literally means. So we see those things being interchangeable. So no, notice here, the term sometimes is referred to as the self-life. It's what it is to live for self. It's what it is for our cravings, lusts, and desires to run rampant without being put into check. It's the reason why we hate people. It's the reason why we want what we cannot have. It's the reason why we think about running that guy off the road because he got creative with his sign language. That happened to me a few days ago. It was very interesting to think about the body, soul, and spirit in that context. I'm a good driver. Don't. Do you? I think we all do. If we had to be honest, right? We got some creative sign language of our own. Some of it looks like the Three Stooges, but we'll get it across. It's whatever. Moving on. Don't, don't stop. Stop being up so uptight, man. Don't act like you don't sin. Don't act like you haven't thought that. The reason why we're studying that is because I'm trying to show you where it comes from. Where is it located in us? And how do we deal with it? 
We got to know how we're made before we know how we can move forward. It's really important. So let's not pretend we don't sin. We're all here because we are sinners. So the term is sometimes referred to as the self-life. Now here's what's interesting. And again, we're going to talk in depth about the salvation of the soul next Sunday, okay? The redemption of our soul pertains to sanctification, how we live our lives now, being set apart by the Lord because we've submitted to Him in light of our standing in Christ, giving way to glorification. So you're going to find it often in present or future tenses that we're talking about. Everybody with me still? Okay, so here's what we need to know. The soul is the meeting place between the spirit and the body. It's what occurs in the middle. It's the burger between two buns, okay? And was quickened by the combination of the breath of life and the dust of the ground. We saw that in Genesis chapter 2-7, yes? Okay, the next one. The soul consists of mind. That means our natural logic, how we think apart from God is the idea. Our consciousness, the fact that we're aware that we're here, and also our thought, what goes on in your noggin. That's part of it. Also our will, our self-determination. Anybody got a strong-willed child? Anybody dealt with a strong-willed person? It comes from their soul. It comes from them camping out on the self-life. The refusal to humble oneself and submit to another person of authority. That's because we are prideful in wanting to promote the self, the soul, our own life. So notice, self-determination and emotions. Internal and external expressions of what is perceived as truth at any given moment. Now if you all closed your eyes right now, and if I told you that there were snakes under your chairs... And you heard something rattle very closely. How would you feel about that? You might be scared. Why? Because you would perceive that it was true, yes? Until you recognize that that's not what it is at all. So the idea that emotion is all a response in the soul to whatever we're verifying is true at any given moment. This is why we have such things that are important like the faith, excuse forgive me, the faith rest Life. In fact, Chuck, you're going to be doing a Sunday school class that pertains to that, right? Get involved in Chuck's Sunday school class coming up. Sign-ups are next week. But get plugged into that because the idea is when I'm hit with something that I saw coming out of nowhere, oh my gosh, this happened. Oh my gosh, they're in the hospital. Oh my gosh, there's been a car wreck. There's been a death. Somebody's sick, whatever it is. And that catches us off guard. Immediately, we have an emotional response to those things that we perceive as true. And the only way that we get out of acting erratically and irrationally in those situations is by holding on to the truth of God's Word so that God can communicate to us through the Spirit that has been redeemed in order to bring soothing to our soul and get our emotions in check. It's impossible any other way. It's impossible. So when we talk about emotions, what's either internal or external because of the truth at any given moment. Andrew Murray has a book called The Spirit of Christ. Very good book. I recommend it. He writes here, Standing thus midway between two worlds, being the body and spirit, belonging to both, the soul had the power of determining itself, of choosing or refusing the objects by which it was surrounded and to which it stood related. In other words, the soul is the place where choices 
are made. And this is why personal responsibility is such an important thing that we're promoting. It's where choices are made. And for the believer can either be compliant or dismissive to the Spirit. So let me ask you this question. Let's think about this for a second. You ever been in a situation where temptation is going to come your way? You see it coming. And you could sin. But there is something telling you not to, yes? Realize that's the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention to bring your soul into check. Trying to say, you don't want to do this. This is wrong. It's going to be messed up. It's going to cost you a lot. And this is why when the enemy tempts us, he tempts us in ways that brings pleasure to the senses. He works through the body to try to get at the soul to swing us in that way. God works through his word, through the spirit, to the soul, to bring it into compliance so that the spirit is leading the charge in that situation. This is why understanding our identity in Christ is so important, because it's something that's been set up in our souls that will never be lost. And if it's unshakable, it's where you can camp out and never leave if you don't want to. Always keeping sight of who I am in Christ. That's why we gave out these bookmarks two and three weeks in a row. Well, so that we would begin to understand everything that God has done for us in Christ so that we don't have to sin. We don't have to fall prey to these things. So important for us to understand. The last one here on the bottom of that page. When considering passages that deal with the flesh or sin in the singular, referring to our sin nature within the person that commits sins, the origin of such responses is the soul. Now you've got your Bibles. Look at Genesis 3. You're familiar with this scene. Eve finds herself suddenly having a conversation. And she does some deductive reasoning because of some persuasion. And so I want you to look at chapter 3, look at verse 6, and watch what happens, okay? When the woman saw that the tree, number one, was good for food, and that it was, number two, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, number three, desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now let's read it again, and let me help you see how Eve paid attention to the soul because of the senses being aroused in the body and disregarded her covering in the spirit at that time. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, in other words, her mind, her logic is reasoning, that she can feed off of it, and it's okay. It'll meet the exact same need that all the rest of these trees are, so why not? Reasoning in her mind. Using her own human rationale to bring her to that conclusion. This is why we're told, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's that talking about? Putting this organ before him? No, it's really talking about this, with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, because that's where this takes place. Acknowledge him. How do you do that? Here, in all your ways, and he will guide your path. So notice, she's reasoning with herself. The mind is logic. It's good for food. Look at the next one. And that it was a delight to the eyes. In other words, it's beautiful to look at. When some of you people came in today, you looked at that big thing of roses out there. Ooh, these are so pretty. Right? I want to sniff them. Some of you got emotional about it. Some of you didn't. 
What's wrong with y'all? But that's the part of your soul that was drawn to it. Notice that Eve's getting emotional about this. Look what it says. It was a delight to the eyes. Mmm, this is pleasing to look at. Wow, this sure is pretty. Wow, this sure is beautiful. Another way she's being pulled in as part of the soul. But look at the next part. And that the tree was desirable to make one, what's the word? Wise. Here's the will, self-determination. If I eat this, it will give me more than I have. Everybody see this? Here you have it. Mind, emotions, will, all pulled in. How was it pulled in? Because of a conversation she had and an enticement that entered her body, the outer side, into her soul to lead her astray, to pursue her lusts. That's how it happened. God's word was hidden in her, yes, but she forsaked obeying the spirit that was testifying in one direction so that she could do what she wanted to. Everybody see how that works? We're tempted in the same way. We're tempted in the exact same way. Turn over your pages, last page here. The soul did not die at the fall. That's important to understand. Adam and Eve's minds, wills, and emotions still worked, although they were severely skewed. Remember, Adam had never experienced fear before, right? I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid. Yes? They realized they were naked, and so they sewed together fig leaves. All those are emotional responses. Where do they take place at? The soul. That's where they take place. How about the next one? Whereas the Spirit is redeemed at the moment of justification by faith, and the glorification of the body is guaranteed. The salvation of the soul is not guaranteed. And the majority of those verses that are listed there, I'm actually going to take you to. In fact, do this with me if you wouldn't mind. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Mitch, I didn't give you this one. If you can bring it up, great. If not, that's okay. Romans chapter 8. Turn there because this is important for you to see. Now remember, the salvation of the soul has nothing to do with justification. Justification cannot be lost. In fact, let's look at 29 and 30 of chapter 8. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Predestined to what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Notice it doesn't say predestined to go to heaven when you die. That's important for us to understand that. God's goal for us is sanctification. That's what he wants. He wants us conformed to his image, and we will all be perfectly conformed to his image at our glorification. Now watch how this runs here. It says, uh, let's see here, uh, to be conformed to the image of his son so that, here's the reason, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also, what's the word? Justified. So your justification is a done deal. And these whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified, and it's mentioned in the past tense, meaning that it's a done deal. Let me ask you a question. How come it doesn't say those whom he justified, he sanctified? Why doesn't it say that? How come sanctification is not a guaranteed thing in this list? Because it's all dependent upon our submission to the Lord. think this is important guys this is a weighty thing to grasp i hope that you're getting it so back to the paper 
This does not mean in any way that justification is lost. Rather, it's the result of the believer in Christ not denying himself, taking up his cross daily, and following Jesus. Hating one's life is actually to despise the way of the self-life or where the soul would want to lead us because of the enticements of the body, rejecting it in favor of the leading of the Spirit. This is why when we're told to walk by the Spirit, that's what it's talking about. Let the Spirit lead you and you follow the Spirit. That's where God is ministering to us. Looking down below the dotted line, Murray summarizes, the Spirit is the seat of our God consciousness, the soul of our self consciousness, the body of our world consciousness. If you've ever been self-conscious about something in your life, that is something that originates in the soul. And you either believe and will respond according to truth that you believe is true at that time, whether it's come through the body to the soul or from the spirit to the soul. And let me tell you this right now, only what God says about you is true. Nothing else matters. It doesn't. In the spirit, God dwells in the soul self, in the body sense. As long as the right relation existed and the soul with itself was subject to the Spirit and through it to God, all was well. But sin came as the assertion of self in seeking its life through sense and not obedience to the Spirit. And so the soul, self, selfishness, became the ruling principle of man's life. For the believer in Christ, it is possible for either the spirit or the body to reign. When the spirit reigns, it only does so through the soul in order to influence the body to comply with righteousness. This would be best understood in the command to walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. When the body reigns, it is because the senses have been promoted to the bearer of truth, convincing the mind, will, and emotions leading to actions that reject the spirit. Now, here's another way that we can see this threefold division of the human being, and that's in the death of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke 23. We'll finish up here. Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my... His human spirit. Notice that. I commit my spirit. Having said this, He breathed His last. When we die, our spirit is what immediately goes to be with the Lord. Now how about this? If you turn over to Acts... And we'll see about Jesus' soul. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. He is making a case for Jesus Christ being the Messiah. He is quoting Psalm 16, verse 10. And he's trying to tell them, this is, not, this is David writing, but David was not talking about himself. He's talking about another. And look what it says in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 27. Because you will not abandon my, what is it? Soul to Hades. Now, we often call Hades hell, and we often think of hell as a place of torment, fire, brimstone, those types of things. And a lot of that thinking would actually be better placed with the idea of the lake of fire. 
But the idea of Hades at this time would be the abode of the dead before the resurrection. Where did Jesus' soul go in that three days' time? What's it tell you? Hades. That's important. Now, why is that? If you notice, I've given you another verse here to look at, a passage, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. You don't have to turn there, but you can look in your own time. But the reason is, is because he went down and he testified to the spirits, it uses that word, in prison. And these are the ones who fell in Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God, being celestial beings, had intercourse with human women, and they brought forth a race known as the Nephilim, and this is what instigated the flood to come about the earth because the earth had become exceedingly evil. And those spirits who disobeyed in that way were confined to gloomy darkness and chains until the day of judgment. Jesus went down and talked to them. How many of you want to be in on that conversation when it took place? But it was probably the Messiah has come and sin is over. I would have loved to have heard it, heard it, heard it, heard it. Forgive me. Moving on. The last one here, Matthew 27. Turn with me, please. Don't get lazy. Matthew 27. Your soul may not be willing, but your spirit wants you to. Matthew 27, look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he'd hewn out in the rock. And he rolled the large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Death. But the body died. So notice, since death took place, his spirit separated, now before the Father in heaven, but also his soul in Hades, but did not stay there, was then reunited with a resurrected body, much like ours will be as well. Now I know what you're thinking. Are you saying that our souls go to Hades for a time? Praise God for the resurrection? No. In fact, when our spirits die, or sorry, when our spirits are separated from our bodies at death, our spirits and our souls will be before the Lord. But the part of us that comes before the judgment seat of Christ regarding what we've done while in the body, whether good or bad, is the soul. It is the soul that will be judged. So I want to repeat to you Jesus' words. And remember, he said this to believers, and he wouldn't have said it if it was not a possibility. What does a man gain if he gets the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or let's phrase it another way. What do you really have to show for living for yourself? And the answer is nothing. So don't. Jim, say it. Yes. Yes. You going to be here next week? The best thing you can do in this life is lose your soul because you will gain it in the life to come. But if you love your soul now, 
living for yourself. The soul is the self-life. If you live for yourself now, you will lose it in the age to come. You won't have anything to show for it. It will be a waste. It will be like coming before Jesus and bringing a presentation to him and sand is just pouring through your fingers. Or let me say it this way to, to bring it together with 1 Corinthians 3 idea. It is like building your life with wood, hay, and stubble rather than gold, silver, and precious stones. And when fire tests it at the judgment seat of Christ, it will burn up and you will actually suffer loss before the Lord though he himself will be saved yet as through fire. How we live matters. How we live matters. God has not left us dumb. He's given us his word to know him. He's given us the indwelling spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth, to be our comforter. He has given us the body of Christ with which to worship him in completeness and to represent him faithfully. Guys, we are not ignorant people, but we have to pay attention to the particulars of his word to understand why is it important for us to live a submissive life. Jesus is king, not me. He saved me. I couldn't save myself. If that isn't convincing enough to say, you know what? I need to come to the Lord and say, I've lived for me. It's been all about me. I've been really awesome on Sundays between the time of nine o'clock and 1030. But the rest of my life, it's all about me and what I can gain, what I can get now, how I can serve myself. And Jesus is telling you, I got so much more for you that if you live for me now, I'll show you incredible things in the life to come. He wants to have greater fellowship with every one of us. So be here next week, right? You guys took a, a right-handed oath with your left hand on the Bible last week. See it through. See it through. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for mercy. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you, God, uh, that you show us clearly who we are. You tell us because you are our designer. Father, you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, let us respond well to these things, to take them seriously. That we have nothing to fear unless we have been dismissive of you and willfully entertaining sin in our lives and loving ourselves instead of bringing all things before you. Submission is hard, but it's so important. Thank you, God, that you've given us a new life in Christ with which to submit to you. It's in his name. Amen.